Welcome to Feather and Mountain Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. I am Delusions of Grendel, and I am your host on this journey through Middle Earth. Typically, this (laughs) is a podcast about the Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime, wherein I am your veteran reader guiding never readers through their journey. However, in this edition in Season 2, we are exploring the Rings of Power on Amazon Prime, in which I am a very proud Tolkien never reader, and I am joined by my fabulous host, Graham Confusion, aka my father. Graham, how you doing? I'm doing just great, sitting out here in the misty mountains of British Columbia, having a great time. Having a dandy time, and I am taking care of your dog, who has decided to run across the Trans-Canada Highway and piss all over our carpets, and it's fine, because she's 13 and senile, and it's it's good and safe. She's a good girl. You look after her. And that's what Zep is for. This podcast is now sponsored by Zep, the best a urine stain can get. <laughs> Uh, So joining us this week on our episode is uh, the nerd you've all heard about, the older brother who I have disparaged. It is the one, the only, Peregrine coming in hot from Toronto. Peregrine, how you vibing, how you living? Doing well. Uh, It's good to finally introduce myself. I like to think of myself as the one that bridged you two together because i've read wheel of time i've read lord of the rings basically i know everything and that is where you get the arrogance from my friends uh so for those who uh, haven't listened to this podcast since its inception or who may not know my origin story into the wheel of time my older brother effectively is uh the one who threw eye of the world at me and was like you should read this you you dipshit uh it's very good um but Peregrine, for our new listeners who may not know that much about you or who haven't listened to me say all the words all the time, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background into your history with fantasy, with Wheel of Time, with Lord of the Rings, and um, your overall impressions of the Rings of Power thus far? Yeah, so I guess my excursion into fantasy really started with The Hobbit. Uh Going through uh, grade school, learned to read, got really into reading, loved it, wanted to push myself. A friend of my class started talking about Hobbits and Lord of the Rings. Uh, heard about it, rented the movies once, only once. Uh, the animated version, if you've heard the other podcast, it may be more than once. Don't worry about it. And I feel like we definitely watch that more than once (laughs) hundreds of times i'll pull your blockbuster records and uh so then started reading the hobbit uh graham had a copy read it outstanding illustrations in that copy by the way the original versions of the illustrations in that copy in that lovely leather bound gold embossed book that my sister gave gave to me when i was like 18 years old uh yeah so read that and after that, got into Lord of the Rings, got into a cycle where I read that 
consistently. Uh, I know a lot of fantasy fans do the same thing. Let's throw some numbers. End. Like, how old are you in this time period? Are you two? Uh, are you 17? Where are we fallen? Read The Hobbit. I believe it was the summer between grade two and grade three. Classic. And uh, it wasn't until the end of grade three that I was deemed mature enough to read Lord of the Rings. Because there's uh, so much sex in Lord of the Rings. Like, that shit. No, there's murder <laughs> and, and violence and wars and fighting and desertion You're right. and that's, things like that's that. That's definitely yes, a grade three thing, the... not a grade two thing. Right. It's it was very, okay in grade three, not in grade two. It's very different. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so grade three, read it and just read it, read it, read it, read it. Eventually, people encourage me to read other things, but I can't really find anything that, you know, is appropriate for or deemed appropriate for someone in grade six, but also entraps me in, in the world. Lot, read lots of things through school. And this is now a Redwall podcast. And I, uh, excuse me, rude, because everyone encouraged you to read Redwall. And Matthias, I stan him and I forever will, as I will Luke the Warrior. So do not disparage my tiny mouse warriors. Not here. Not today. You read them and you enjoyed them. I am that is. I get it. Anagram pre-JK. Uh... (laughs) Again, spoiler alert for those who have not read Redwall. We won't go Red into Wall. that. Ugh. Idiots. And so then went to a bookstore, got introduced to Eye of the World. Loved it. Uh, read that to the end. Realized there's more. And so, but didn't have the second book. So got that in the while I was waiting to get that, read The Eye of the World again, and then ripped through Wheel of Time uh, up to... I mean, as best you could. To Path of Daggers, I think, was released when you picked it up. Yeah, Path of Daggers was out, uh, and yeah, so ripped through it as best I could at that point. Had to wait for Winter's Heart to come out. Um, Needed someone to talk to about it. Gave delusions here. Eye of the World said, you need to read this. We both got into online internet forums talking about it. I mean, Nerdy really, out. the best part of the series was ahead of us. Like, after Path of Daggers, it uh, everyone just talks about how good the next couple of books are. That's all you hear in the community is, keep reading. It's, it's the best part of the series, for Worth sure. waiting for. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So I look forward to season five of Wheel of Time. The slog is not real, and I will stand by that unless you lived it, <laughs> which we both did. <laughs> now you can blitz through it like heralded by Michael Kramer and Kate Redding's beautiful voices. <laughs> it's one of those things where, in retrospect, so many important things happened so many good things, but we won't get there yet because spoilers. So you can just, Graham, you can just listen to this and be like, ah, good things on the horizon. And hear what, who's the Lord of the Rings? What's the soundtrack that like, Annie Lennox? On the horizon. 
think it was like yeah, Return of the King. Into the West is the name of the song. Yeah, Into the West, which is what you've been doing all week, right, Graham? Indeed, just exploring the beautiful mountain areas between the Misty Mountains and the the uh, nice Kootenai Mountains and all great things and doing lots of bike riding and stuff like that. But I have managed to watch the episode a few times, once with um, subtitles so that I'm able to read and listen to all the funny words, and then I appreciated it even more. No weird things I found this time in subtitles, although I was much better able to understand Duran, which I thought was good because he he mumbled a few times. He did, and uh, I will also say I did miss my references to Vrath this episode. There was no orcs <laughs> that stood out in the subtitles. Um, so without further ado, let's get into what this podcast is about. Um, it's about the Rings of Power. This week we're talking episode five, Partings. This week we open up with my main bay, Nori. But we do not close the episode with Nori. So this is the first time, episode five, where we don't open and close with the same character, which, as a type A personality, uh, kind of annoyed me, but it's okay. We will grow from this. It's fine. I will let it linger, and I will wait to see how the other episodes play out. We discussed this in advance. We will be talking about Nori first. Of course, we had other plots with uh, Elrond and Durin. Gilgalad is thrown into the mix. Galadriel, which encapsulates uh, Hot Human and Queen Mean and Isildur. Uh, we also have a Rondir and a Dar and some like orc tension and really shitbag humans. So this week we're tackling quite a bit with like four full plots. There was a lot that happened in an hour and 12 minutes. Let's start with overall impression of the episode. Peregrine, your thoughts, episode five, broad sweeps. I can't tell if this series is moving too fast or too slow and this episode is kind of the epitome of it where a lot of people uh, a lot of people's storylines are moving really quick and then you have 10 days of sword fighting in a plot line that could be moving quick um that's all in retrospect of course looking back going through it i quite enjoyed the episode uh, enjoy the characters and definitely want to see where everyone's plot lines are going because knowing the world, it could be anywhere. Okay, so you're still engaged. You haven't flipped a table in rage at the broken token Tolkien lore. No, there's definitely timeline changes, but that's all we we. Everyone knew that had to happen in any adaptation of this because of the number of years it span. It happened in the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, from when Bilbo left to when Frodo left. It You have to do it in this medium because you can't just write three words and skip ahead a thousand years. Right. Right. Uh, Graham, your thoughts. Episode five. Where does it fall? How does it land basically in your ranking? I would put it uh, right up there, right behind episode four. Uh, I liked 
the pace. I liked the lore that it explored. Yes, there's questions about Mithril and is that really where it came from? And I haven't gone digging deep into things. Of course, I, I don't know that Tolkien ever actually surmised what it was. And I have not read all 10 volumes that Christopher Tolkien published, so I don't know for sure. But um, I, I think it's an interesting tie into the Balrog, and that will get people who have watched the movie uh, engaged because they can see you what the... You bitch your ass, it will! <laughs> exactly. And it, and it doesn't keep it doesn't keep it at bay. I also like the fact that it's a mix of good and evil, which is perfect. I love what they did with Starman. I like uh, where Adar is going, but uh, to me that moved about as fast as it could, and we also have a, a, a cliffhanger. Does Waldreg do the nasty on the young lad or not? But uh, generally really good. That's your buddy Wayne Yip yet again. Again, I know. Yip coming in hot with a third episode in Rings of Power. And some great behind-the-scenes info if you haven't seen those interviews. Uh, Have not watched them yet, and you can regale our audience with those, and then I will promptly be going to watch them. I believe it was with Nerd of the Rings, and he did confirm that you see Narsil in one of the scenes. Uh, In episode five? Episode four. Oh, I, well, I I can't imagine that that sword that uh, the queen gave to Elendil is Narsil, but I guess maybe it is. We I thought Celebrimbor was the was the smith of it. Who knows? Hmm. No, it's not the. You, you see it in the background shot, and the camera kind of hovers on it for a second as Galadriel is talking. Oh, uh, so in the Houses Wayne of Lore, then, probably. Okay. Wayne Yip confirmed that it is Narsal, which then also allows for it to be forged by the elves, and Celebrimbor just sent to Numenor and there. Right. We well, don't I, I, know that does. If it uh, makes it on the ship or not. That does answer one question for me because, damn, how did, how did wonderful Galadriel get into that. Um, uh, equipment so quickly and where was that stored well probably in the houses of lore or something like that but probably anyway. in the hall of lore we'll yeah. get there okay yes. so broad thoughts uh i mean my thoughts are less important i again uh pretty people pretty things pretty armor um Gorgeous great one-liners scene, right? unbelievable we will talk about the Elrond scene under that tree in great detail, <laughs> but it also helps that it is currently like fall when we are recording this, and I am a basic bitch who loves a pumpkin spice latte Ugh. and some yellow trees, and like my boy Elrond delivered with both. But before we get into that plot, because sorry listeners, we're tackling Elrond last. So contain your rage until then. We're going to open up the episode with Nori, who we missed in episode four. And Graham, I know you've been feeling Nori. So why don't you go ahead and give us your thoughts on Nori's plot? Well, she's obviously very good as uh, teaching English as a second language because Starman's coming along pretty good, understanding what peril means and stuff like that. I thought that was a cute exchange. Um, but I'm, my highlight I'm of peril, yeah, my highlight of the entire uh, five episodes so far is Polly singing their traveling song. That was wonderful. That 
is a Hobbit song, unlike what we saw in episode three. But Okay, this... so I literally have in my notes, because I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis of Nori's plot line. So basically, we have a travel montage, we have uh, an interview with a vampire, and um, then we have your tongue getting stuck to a telephone pole in winter. And that is Nori's plotline in a nutshell. But I have in my notes here, epic poppy warble. And then in brackets, how is this song versus nobody walks alone? <laughs> nobody goes off trail. It was mag. Magnificent. And Poppy is such a spectacular singer. I just, that just enchanted me at the start of the episode. And it just, uh, you know, it also was a great way to pass the traveling montage. I'm glad they didn't show a whole bunch of walking with just hobbits with grass on their heads so they can hide in the fields. I think we understand why they weren't in episode four. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? Lots of walking. But it was, it was very good. Uh, I think the biggest thing in the Nori, um, um, Harfoot uh, plotline obviously a star man and he has uh, a power to him but the power is evil and I say that because his arm uh, became heavy every time he's used it his arm has become heavy he doesn't know how to control it and then he had to do that extra magic to chase that stuff out so there is something evil in what he's doing this goes back to me still thinking that he is Sauron Sauron, sorry, uh, because he he doesn't know what he has. He doesn't know how to contain. So that to me is a huge plot, uh, a plot line thing development. And I don't care about the wolves. I don't care about everything and pounding the ground. That was all cute. But that blackness in his arm is alarming. And I think that was probably one of the biggest things of the episode after Polly's song, of course. Okay. And then he, of course, ices his arm as if to leech out that darkness. And our girl Nori sticks her hands in. And this is why I say it's like a tongue on a telephone pole in the middle of winter. Because if you've ever, I don't know, inquisitively or on a dare decided to see what would happen if You're you welcome. licked if you licked a pole with your tongue in minus 40 degrees centigrade... Well, the answer is your your tongue gets stuck and uh, you need some hot chocolate poured over it to free it. But that was effectively Nori's arm as she gets stuck to the stranger at the end, right? Like they they burn together in this frozen thing and she rips, she manages to tear herself away. She does this very cool like gymnastics routine. That was, and that, gets, uh, was a little bit of help. So as she, as she was pulling, um, the star man actually broke the ice because he was uh, getting, purging his body of whatever evil that was. Honestly, Peregrine, you and I haven't chatted before this. I would love your thoughts on this one because uh, I know you, you pick up on stuff all the time. But that to me is probably the single most important part of the show lore wise because it really made a difference to Starman's character to me yeah so Peregrine your thoughts on Nori and uh I guess the stranger's Elsa moment uh so it was different for me where I didn't perceive it as a darkness I perceived it as he needed an outlet he couldn't okay control it strictly through his 
mortal body and needed something like a staff to channel. How fun. Okay, okay. I like this. I like Keep it. going. I like it. He's not Gandalf, but okay, I like it. But if you look at other wizards, think back to the Peter Jackson trilogy when Gandalf and Saruman are fighting. One of the key things is when Saruman takes Gandalf's staff. Absolutely. Yes. And then he's wielding two, and suddenly Gandalf is almost helpless against it. So you're saying this is going to build on the lore that's already established because this is a reason to have a staff, that you actually need this to be able to control the power within you. Right, because the staff itself has no power as far as we know. Uh, Otherwise, anyone that picked it up could do something. But it's a channeling thing where when Saruman is able to get both, suddenly he's more powerful and Gandalf is not. Uh, And whether that's because he's not willing to take the risk yet to damage his mortal body, or because he physically can't, we don't know. But where we see magic being channeled without anything, it causes physical harm to that person. Maybe it's something as simple as... Uh, and and that, you know, that good. would explain um, this being, whatever he is. So let's say he is a wizard or, or of the wizarding thing. They have to be careful on which ones they use because they have to be referred to in uh, the appendix or the book. But that's okay. They can always make a new one. Why not? Um, uh, having to relearn or learn the language of Middle Earth, having to relearn their magic. So something's happened to them with this star thing coming across and they don't know where they are. Still leaves the door open for Sauron because he had to do that crazy escape. It's obviously a mature thing, but they um, uh, th- th- having lost his staff, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. That, that's, I like that, uh, that little twist. Good one. I like it. The other thing with Starman is he knows Kenya. Quenya, yeah, that's right. Oh, is that Quenya? Is that what he was speaking? Because all it said. Two of the words, I believe, and from looking into it, were uh, in the Elvish language. Because they didn't identify what language he was speaking in the subtitles. So it would only take someone who spoke Quenya, you fucking nerd, to identify that. I know how to use the (laughs) internet, I find things. Wow. I'm impressed, but I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't know what language it was, but I assumed it would be something like Elvish because all high beings have it. But uh, I mean, it didn't answer any questions on who he is or who he isn't, uh, but it did um, uh, change our perspective. I do like that that thought about the staff. That that's a, a good one. A wizard without their staff. I like I like that as you know a channeling focus. The only question I have based on this is like I'm still. No spoilers, but like, yeah, my thoughts have changed on Hallbrand a little bit after this episode. My thoughts have not changed on The Stranger. I still think he's Gandalf. (laughs) I'm adamant about it. But that being said, when Nori is iced to him, so when he's like in his Elsa phase and he's like, do you want to build a snowman? Like, this motherfucker needs to cool down. Um there is that flicker of almost what is reminiscent of the eye of Sauron, right? Like that's what we see is like that quick flash of the burning 
image that was him landing, right? The fireball that looks so reminiscent of the eye of Sauron, Sauron. And it's there, it's in a flash, and it happens. And it reminded me so much of that scene when um, Pippin touches the Palantir. Palantir and gets like shocked back from it because it's the, the quick flash of the eye of Sauron. And that reminded me like Nori sees this image of that blazing eye and then is thrown backwards. Well, who were those crazy? Who were those crazy monks that were overlaid in that? Oh, in we'll that talk scene? about that slim, shady motherfucker in a second. <laughs> so the interesting thing tying the ice to the strangers landing, Nori, uh, or I think it was Poppy that fell down, right? Yes, Poppy fell down. She didn't feel the fire. Oh, but look, when Nori was she com- wasn't coming through, by yeah, it. it was not hot. But obviously, felt the effects of the ice. So is that reference back to the stranger knowing that they need to protect them from what's going on and then it's shielding and breaking immediately? Or is it from the halflings perspective? I really like that you called them halflings. (laughs) Find the halflings! Uh, also, a nice um, reference by Adar in, in this thing to the Uruks. So uh, he actually gave a, the name to the orcs. So we know what their, her, their what their heredity leads to. So Mordor for sure. Pre-Urukai. Okay, so with with that Peregrine and your thoughts, kind of, I don't know. I'm I'm torn on the stranger. I still think he's good. I still think he's Gandalf. I have questions about the impact of what is happening and you've you've helped to assuage some of my concerns where do you fall on who the stranger is do you have a guess at first i really thought it was sauron i don't think that's the case anymore whether it's gandalf or one of the other or saruman could be yeah you got saruman you got radagast uh there's um I think they're called the blue wizards. Yeah, there's the blue and the green. Yeah, I know. I just... uh, but I think he, he's one of the Astari because they were sent back specifically to combat Sauron's rise. And Sauron could be in multiple places right now based on how everything falls out. I no longer think it makes sense for him to be the stranger. Okay. Uh, I also have no idea where the stranger is heading to. <laughs> right. Agree with you on that. I don't know where this arc's going. And if we go back to something that um, Grendel said uh, last episode, it might be the one before, uh, the sign of the star in the sky was that it's time, the climb is close for Sauron to appear. So Sauron may not be there yet. The the character who is Sauron may not have shown. So one other thing with the song that they sing, very reminiscent of the song or poem Bilbo writes about Aragorn. Yes. Not all who wander are lost. Now, is that because it's passed down through generations and Bilbo picks up on it? Um, Or is it the writers do it? a nod to those 
Tolkien poems. I think there's room for both. To I be lean honest. towards it being passed down, and the reason I do that is to give the writers the benefit of the doubt because the song in the previous episode was so bad that it didn't stick around and there's no remnants of it, but the good ones do. And when you pick up in the third age, that's what is left over. Okay. I mean, that's, that's good too. I, I mean, I personally think the writing here is good. They've, they know their stuff. They've done their research. So all these trolls that are barking about the change of the change of the lore and what Tolkien wrote and blah, blah, blah. I, I think, I still think that overall they're being as true to the lore and respectful of Tolkien as possible. Yes, they're changing a few of the subplots a little bit, but I don't think they're going to change, they're going to change canon in any great way. They may stretch it a bit here and there to make a fun new storyline, but I, I honestly think they're trying to treat Tol- Tolkien as the Bible and work around it. So I, I think they're they're excellent writers and they know their stuff. So I think you're uh, you're not on the heredita- heredity of uh, the good songs from Hobbits goes on. Yeah, I, I will say watching this episode, as soon as Pappy started singing, I was like, is she repeating lines? Are the same words being used? No, this is a song that's just going to change. Cool. It feels Tolkien to me based on what uh, Graham has told me about Tolkien songs. And um, it was beautifully sung, and I was really happy with that. My final thought with respect to Nori is, who in the fuck is this eight-mile motherfucker who comes around with his, like, M&M Stan bleach blonde hair, who feels the ground where the stranger landed in his bleached hood, Looks a little bit elven, but I actually didn't look at the ears. Who are these three people who are looking for the stranger? What are those characters on the? What are those characters in the Barrow Downs? Uh, they were men of Angmar, I believe. What is Angmar? It wasn't in the movie. It was in the book. They didn't. They left two parts out. Two important parts out of the Leave the Shire. One is Tom Bombadil. Oh. How can you do that? The other one was this whole thing where they're being sucked into the 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 uh, the ground of the Barrow Downs, and they 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 spend a a night or two underneath as they try to figure out how to get out. And it was actually, I believe, Tom Bombadil who uh, who pulls them out of there. Tom Bombadil frees them. They find Numenorean blades there. So Angmar is the kingdom in the north. That is where the Witch King comes from. It's the Witch King of Angmar, but he doesn't go there till the Third Age. Right. So where we are right now in the Second Age, that Witch King could be from anywhere. Okay. I I see where you're going with this. but So are you suggesting that those three early 90s Backstreet Boys are from Angmar? Or like, who are these bye-bye-byes? That's the only thing that came to my mind. It's something that wasn't introduced or played on in the original trilogy movie that that um, Jackson and team did, and it is an important couple of chapters in the uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, and maybe they're trying to reintroduce it. It may, maybe and Jeff, maybe this is also how we get a tie-in to a King of the North who can come back later as the Witch King when they get the seven rings for the humans, or is it nine rings for the humans, seven for the dwarves, three for the elves? I. I'm torn on those strangers because they're clearly meant to be good and they're clearly meant to be Are bad. they meant to be good? 
Like they're wearing white. Yeah, but like so, homeboy looks like, sketchy as fuck. Right, which is why they're meant to be bad. And also, it's post Labor Day, and no one should wear white after Labor Day. Therefore, evil. <laughs> they know that they're trying to throw us off with these ones, right? Like if they were dressed in black and looked menacing, easy giveaway. They're dressed in white. They're there in the daytime. And they have what appears to be a constellation. Yes. Yes, I think that, that I saw that tie in to Starman because Starman also had a constellation. I have not gone back to compare the two, but it did look like to me a subset of what he had in his mind. And the other constellation we know about is Arendil, who is Elrond's father, who we also get reference to. Yes. In this episode. Touching scene. Is it that? I don't know. Okay, so basically we leave this with, we don't know who the fuck these guys are. We think maybe sketchy, maybe bad, maybe shades of gray, but not 50 of them. Always think in Tolkien, uh, friends of the enemy look fair but are foul. And people who are typically good may look foul, but are often more fair. Again, think back to Strider and Aragorn. Uh, it was a little, a little twisted quote from Frodo. So uh, always think of that when you're looking at Tolkien characters, Middle-earth characters. If they look really good, white, pure, chances are they may not be all that good. But they could be independent. We might not see a bunch of these, these little dudes uh, even in the next episode. It may be something that we get surprised with in episode 10 where they all of a sudden reveal their purpose. Like they just, they just popped in for like, what, three minutes? In this episode? Less than that. Much less than that on uh, in terms of scream time. Like, they were probably there for, like, a total of 30 seconds, quite honestly. And they it was just a blip. They were important enough to make the trailer. Right. Yes. Uh, like, the fi- like, the trailer in terms of, like, the like season one trailer. Season one trailer. Like, everyone was the, like, the who release. is this Eminem motherfucker who's popping his face up, like, looking sketchy as shit? But, I mean, they could be people that worship the Istari and old gods and are believing that they'll come back. So that's why they're searching for it. Or they could be evil and they know of the prophecy that when Sauron starts to rise again, someone will be sent back to stop him. Right. And they're looking to intercept that individual before they can do that. Sure, and now I have Adele's Skyfall stuck in my head. Fair enough. Uh, so thanks for that. Um, all right, so from Nori and these uh, sketchy uh, Slim Shadies, we move on. Uh, let's talk about Arondir because I have a lot of very positive things to say about Arondir's plot this episode and a lot of questions that arise from it. So basically, in a nutshell... The Arondir plotline opens with a dar and an orc, and a dar is asks that orc to pull up, you know, the sleeve. The orc's skin is burning in the sun. A dar basically says his time with the sun is limited. He's going to be heading in that way. He's going to have a limited amount of time with the sun, and he's going to like pull a Cheryl Crow and soak up that sun for as long as he can. From there, we have a Bronwyn and Waldrag 
showdown where Bronwyn is like, people are good, people are great, let's fight for humanity. And uh, one, one little thing when she does that, she also says, I know I'm not your king, we are still waiting for him. Good oh, little thing into that. Hallbrand, yes. It's nice. just a little lead in for Hallbrand yeah. coming home. Love that. Love that. Did not pick up on that on any of my watches. Really appreciate that. Um, so we've got Bronwyn and Waldrag, and Bronwyn is like, let's fight, fight for our right to party. And Waldrag is like, nah, B, I'm actually going to like give myself to the Dark Lord because, hey, last time we survived and living is pretty cool and I'd like to keep living. So let's just go ahead and do that. Um, and then the uh, Southlanders divide. It's about a 50-50 split. 50% good, 50% evil. There is some tension around what Theo is going to do, but ultimately I think we as an audience understood and appreciated that Theo was not about to leave his mom, and so he remained behind. There is a beautiful scene between a Rondier and Theo where Theo basically says you know lift your aim and then explains to um Rondier explains to Theo it took me 200 years to muster the courage that you have shown in only 14 epic scene very good Theo scene. trusts him pulls out the hilt Arondir is like, hey, I've seen that before in a statue. It's a very evil sword. And then there is a moment uh, where Arondir then goes to Bronwyn and says, it is a key conjured by some forgotten craft of the enemy to enslave your ancestors. You know, and then they keep talking and they're like, we can survive this. There is a way. There must be. And then there's a dramatic pause. Bronwyn runs down the stairs. They have this very public and verbal altercation and I'm like is this staged I don't know but Bronwyn is effectively saying there is no way to survive this we must cave we must give in and they say it all you know we've only got this watchtower and they both dramatically stare up at this watchtower and that's where we leave them like somehow the watchtower is going to be uh Saving Grace, and the Arondir plotline closes on Nampit, which Nampot. I don't know what the fuck it means in Nampot. orc tongue, Nampot. Nampot. but like straight up club banger. DJ Khaled, whenever you want to remix that, I am there. Nampot, Nampot. So that's Arondir's plotline, and uh, I was really vibing with it. Um, Peregrine, what are your thoughts? Uh, so firstly, I believe when they close on the scene of the tower, uh, the specific words are, the tower will fall. That's right. I think they're leading up to... The them. tower falling. Right, but maybe <laughs> because they sabotage it and collapse it on top of people. It's a big drop off from that tower down to the valley where the orcs are coming. Did the orcs not know there was another way in? Like, what is this? Helm's Deep all over again? I was kind of puzzled by that, but that's all right. Basically, yes. And I think that's what they're setting up episode eight and episode nine to be is Helm's Deep with a magician riding in with a force that has helmets with hair coming out of their top knots. So look weird at, that those look like the Riders of Rohan. We won't discuss Like, look it. at Aomer's helm in 
uh, the two towers. Very Pretty similar. reminiscent. Uh, the other interesting thing is Halbrand knows where Ostirith is, and he points to it, and it, it's in what will become Mordor, uh, kind of in the southwest corner. I saw online that it was referred to as before door. So that's going to be my new favorite thing. Uh, yeah, I haven't heard that. Let's bring that in more. Okay, before door. But that also did bring up a question is, are all these timelines aligned? Okay. Um, I also had that question at the sneak preview for episode five. I had a great theory. I was so excited to talk about it. Um, the preview for episode five dashed my hopes that episode this is five all... or episode six. Sorry, episode six. The preview for episode six dashed my hopes that uh, this had already happened the fall of Ostirith and the tower because we see Queen Supreme and we see Hallbrand standing with Bronwyn and Arondir. Right. Yes. Uh, so obviously Galadriel and team arrive. We saw yes, a great scene in it. the preview where they're galloping across. And yeah. I don't know how much they'll get, but certainly the siege will start next episode. Yeah. But I was fully committed to Hallbrand already having been in Austria. I actually had uh, a thought that he was craving. Like he, I, I thought that Hallbrand was shitbag, uh, who wall drag. Um, was going to stab and we never saw like we just saw Rowan? like Rowan yeah we saw a shit bag like bagging um, wall drag please and we never saw what happened to, to that so I like I had this whole thought in my head that Hullbrand was Rowan and this like oh. that part of it was you know because Hullbrand had said in the pre like you don't know what I've done you don't know you don't know. Exactly. And had talked about Ostirith. And so in my head, this was Hallbrand's story, was that he was part of the men from the Southlands who had gone to Adar to beg forgiveness. And then the preview for episode six dashed my hopes of that. <laughs> well, I don't know. Because it shows uh, continuity and timeline. Well, it may, they may jump forward. Like, we'll see how old Theo is in the uh, episode six. He was not shown in the uh, in the forecast, I don't think. So, you never know. That's interesting. I mean, Bronwyn's still there, and, like, my girl looks fine as hell. But, like, she also does not look like she's aged today, and she's still wearing her same, her same outfit. So, somehow, I doubt that it has survived, like, 20 years. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I think that we're not getting that, like, uh, the Witcher jump that I think thought we might be getting when Hallbrand first talked about that and we saw the humans bow to Adar. And and speaking of Adar, you guys may not be familiar with the Wheel of Time community. I have a very near and dear friend in the Wheel of Time community who is called the Master of the Deck. And that is a reference um, to Malazan, a different series. In other circles, my dear friend Kayla is called Anatar, Lord of dicks. <laughs> now I know Anatar is a Lord of the Rings character. Lord of Gifts. Lord of Gifts. Uh, I prefer Lord of Dicks, but sure, we'll we'll gif it up. Is Anatar a Dar or is he good? Is he? I don't know who Anatar is. I just hear conversation, and we now know definitively 
based on Adar's reaction to Waldrag in this episode, that he is certainly not Sauron. And thank you so much, sir. But like, you will be thrown out of this restaurant. Is Adar Anatar? What's happening? No. So Anatar uh, is Sauron. I see. And he approaches the elves, teaches them how to make rings. Celebrimbor, evil elf. I'm picking up what you're putting down. He teaches Celebrimbor. The interesting thing there is there's two elves that never trust him, despite how much he's giving the elves. Gilgalad and Elrond. Huh. So Gilgalad actually has uh, some redeeming qualities? He has to come around at some point. Now, whether that will be included in the show, because everyone knows Anatar is Sauron, as soon as you introduce Anatar, people are going to turn into Leonardo DiCaprio and go, oh, that's Sauron. Yeah. Right. Great, great meme. So will that be an off-screen thing, say between season one and season two, where Anatar introduces himself at the end of season one, you get a quick recap to season two and it's like oh and we made rings and then you're off to the races or will they actually play with it a little bit with the audience knowing who it is and just constantly cringing at the elves for listening and learning and trusting the lord of dicks <laughs> but Celebrimbor also has to have a redeeming quality at some point and figure out who anatar is because yes. he hides the three elven rings from Sauron. That's right. So what's going on with those guys? How are they going to come back around? Is that going to be included? Who knows? Well, it will have to be because it is called the Rings of Power and we have several years to go through. So Galadriel, Elrond, and I can't remember the other elf who gets the ring. Gil-galad gets two. He gives one to Cerdin. Cerdin, I think okay. that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. He's the shipwright who is also there when Gandalf first comes to Earth, Círdan recognizes who Gandalf is and gives him the Ring of Fire. Right. We've, we've skipped ahead a few years on Rings ring of Power, of I think. That's okay. Yeah, but that also, you know, is the stranger Gandalf? Uh, no. Did you get a ring when he landed? Hmm. No, it's too early. He has not revealed who he is yet, so, so certainly we haven't met Círdan. Uh, no, and he unless he is was the captain of the ship, important. unless he was captain of the ship that was taking them into uh, Valnor. Uh, the, like ultimately, the... he's a very important character, right? Like yep. He is trusted by Gilgalad to look after a ring. He is uh, the shipwright who builds the ships to sail the elves into the west and controls that whole western region. Eventually, I believe, which is. Linden or North Linden. So like final thoughts on Arondir's plot. All I will say is Arondir really stuck with me this episode. He had a couple of epic quotes when Waldrag stands up to protest humans uh, and basically says like, hey, let's go and, you know, swear fealty to this dude because we live Arondir uh, his response is, I have looked that enemy in the eye. He is not your deliverance. He <laughs> also talks about, because, you know, Theo accuses 
I think we get a little bit more of an understanding about why humans uh, in the Southlands really came to hate the elves because, you know, they watched. They were there because they didn't trust the Southlanders to actually make the right decision. Like, they were watching them the entire time. And so Arondir's response to Theo's accusations about, like, why are you here? Why are you helping? Arondir says, in counting the whispers and the knives, I've come to know the voices and the hands of those behind them. Theo says, well, half of those fuckers just left. And... Arondir says to Theo to like actually, you know, try to inspire him and says, but half stayed, including you. So lift your aim. Just Arondir has this. I see. I feel like we see a lot of passion in him this episode, a lot of belief in the good. And it was so affirming to see that in you know, a show, especially contrasted, like this is broadcasting at the same time as House of the Dragon, where, <laughs> ooh, if you've read Fire and Blood, you know where that shit is going. And it's it's going down a dark path. But I feel like this Arondir truly was a light of this episode. He's bringing the positivity. He's bringing the hope. He is the elf who is an eternal optimist that we may not have seen in either Galadriel or Elrond. And, uh, I know he's a made-up character, but I I was really left with the best feelings about a Ron Deere this episode. And I don't know if, if there's any more to that or if there's any Tolkien-esque takeaways from my boy. Elves are not uh, leaders. They're not saviors. They're just a race unto themselves, and they have to look after themselves. But I think he showed the strength of the elves and the caring for them and the fact that they're like the guardians over uh, the men and trying to help them in the event that Sauron and company does come back. So they commit themselves to these tasks. And I just think he was a good representative of that. He also uh, referred back to the lore with that uh, evil sword type thing, which is obviously a Sauron link, Sauron link. Uh, so it's got, I'll use, use the term black magic. It's not necessarily black magic, but it has evil as part of it because power will corrupt. So there is power to that sword, as we saw when uh, Theo sticks it in his arm and Waldreg already knows. And uh, humans like power, so uh, it will create a divide amongst the humans. So I, I think I like what they did with Arondir, and I like what they did with Bronwyn, who almost gave up, but then realized a little talking to, she'd be okay. It's too early to give up. And uh, they leave that scene with the siege starting to form at the bottom as the orcs start arriving in their disarray because they don't know how to be soldiers, right? So generally a pretty good uh, plot, in my humble opinion. Peregrine, I don't know if you saw more. So my thing was... Arondir was the most boring part of that. He gave great speeches, <laughs> gave great but speeches. because I know, or I don't, he's not in the lore. I wasn't focused on it. I was like, where are the other Easter eggs? What's going on here? So the men splitting in half uh, of the races we know in uh, Lord of the Rings, you've got Gondor, which comes from Numenor. You have the men of the south who align with Mordor and fight with Sauron again. And then you have the Rohirrim, and I can't remember where they come from. But if they come from, say, men of the south that fought and seeing the parallels to Helm's Deep that are setting up here, I could see those that stayed at Ostirith moving to become the Rohirrim. 
and aligning themselves with the Numenorians, uh, who are coming over and form Gondor in the south and Arnor in the north. Right. I mean, I hadn't thought that far along or that broadly, but I think those are very, very good points. Very valid. I think that's, uh, I think I, I agree with you. Those are, that's where it's going. The other thing is they're obviously trying to make before door into Mordor. <laughs> and the key to that is the eruption of Mount Doom. Yes. Because then you get a forge with fires hot enough to make a powerful ring. Yep. But it also spews the ash up into the air and covers the land in a darkness so the orcs can move around and do whatever. Right. They don't need tunnels anymore. It would also explain why Adar won't see the light for a long time. So are we getting that eruption by the end of this season? I think that's how this season ends. Okay. Is with the eruption. That'd be cool. I think that means that a certain key ends up in the hands of the orcs and okay. the dar. So Ostirith, the watchtower at Ostirith falls and the key ends up in the hands of Adar. Yes, and I think we've seen some of that in the previews with Galadriel. I think one of the scenes in the early previews is her picking herself up off uh, like a red backdrop with ash everywhere okay. in the air. And I don't think we've seen that scene with her yet. yet the other questions i have are with adar in that how does he actually feel about sauron because he obviously gets very upset by the name but is that because they should be worshiping morgoth how do they know sauron's the number one guy in charge or was like adar passed over for a promotion yeah right i, I just assumed because that's who galadriel's been chasing uh, since episode one uh, that the world knew, but maybe maybe there is some division, and then it. it makes sense you have multiple. But forces. she has her personal vendetta for that too, because Sauron was the one that killed her brother. There are two towers in in um, in Mordor, right? So there is uh, uh, the the main one where Sauron sets up, and then there's the smaller one off to the side, and maybe that's by the way where the uh, this one that we're at now becomes is the small one on the side. Right? Yeah, I mean if it's not toppled, which foreshadowing tbd maybe it gets toppled but it the base stays and they rebuild it other question i have about adar purely speculating who becomes the mouth of sauron in lord of the rings don't know i I never knew never been speculated on sure yeah I, i don't think anyone's talked about it but could it be adar and he just hangs out in mordor gets promoted well, he gets to put if some he talks like on this and, like... and he has funny teeth when he's talking, it may well be him. So we'll have to see how he talks as he gets mangled. Basically, Adar is Rocky Horror. <laughs> Knew it. Um, okay, so from Adar, and because we've touched on my fave Galabadass, let's move over to Numenor. Um, A lot happening in Numenor and also not enough. In a nutshell, Isildur feels entitled to nepotism and also white cis het male privilege. He is trying to get on the boat basically (laughs) by exploiting both his father and his best friend. Uh, Eventually um, 
pretending to save the day seems to work for him. And he ends up on the boat wearing horsehair mane. Good for you, buddy. Nepotism prevails. Very fun. Enjoy shoveling shit. We also have some brief interludes with Aaron and Kevin. They both suck. I don't know what more time I can spend on them, but Aaron is uh, skeptical about uh, sending everyone to Middle Earth. Kevin tries to light a boat on fire after being schooled by his dad, Farazan in capitalism and why it makes sense to go to Middle Earth. Kevin says, cool, I see your logic and I raise you a burning ship and then attempts to pull in Adele and set fire to the rain like a complete and utter dumbass. Elendil was kind of quiet this episode. Galadriel we saw battling with two swords. Um, we saw our boy, I'm just calling him V. Uh, basically, if you could score flesh on Galadriel, you would be promoted to a lieutenant. Really fun sequence. Sure Valendil? Valendil. It is Valendil. Okay, that'll come back. So Valendil does score flesh on Galadriel, gets promoted to a lieutenant, and we get to see some really cute moments with Valendil and Isildur and that poor forgotten third guy whose name starts with an O who is just not as good a friend as, as Isildur even though he's there and trying the entire time. We get some really intense moments from Halbrand forging because he has a guild crest now and I'm sorry but oh my heavens sexual tension is at its peak with Halbrand quite frankly forging a sword and Galadriel speaking with him there's there's some moments there anyway it ends with Halbrand accepting his destiny to return to the Southlands after some persuasive arguments from Galadriel and some some heartfelt confessions about how she believes that she is actually the evil that she is fighting and that people can't tell the difference between her and what she is pursuing we get some great moments there we get uh, epic moments between between Queen Supreme and her dad, and then, of course, uh, everyone fully attired in battle garments at the end of the episode, and the horsehair, and Galadriel struts her way onto that boat and makes very intense eye-fucking contact with Hullbrand while they grasp each other's forearms and we close with them at the bow of the ship leading the way to Middle Earth with uh, sexual tensions at their peak and uh, loins are girded. I, I didn't feel the I didn't feel the sexual tension at all. I, I think uh, he might be interested, but I don't think Galadriel is. You weren't you weren't picking up what Halbrand was pounding down. I don't know how, fr quite frankly, I don't know how you couldn't be because uh, uh, Hot Human really turned it around this episode. And I I will say I was Team Sauron for for Halbrand. Uh, no longer, my friends. Uh, that man is far too hot and emits too many pants feels to, to be Sauron. He, he's definitely a king and he will come back and he will help 
uh, secure, but whether he becomes the king under the mountain because he breaks an oath or whether he becomes the witch queen king from the north if, as the tribe migrates north, we'll find out. We'll see which theory goes forward. But he's starting to show some leadership, but he's still a reluctant guy. So we still we need his backstory to find out what his issue is. And if your timeline theories right, that might be part of it. But we'll see because he wasn't regal at the time. The kings would have been gone for a long time and uh, Bronwyn wouldn't have been referring to a king that had to come if if uh, the kid was um, part of the deal. So um, anyway, uh, in terms of the other stuff, though, I think the important thing to, that I picked up is what a child Isildur is. He has to have his way. He's petulant. Such and, a child. Uh, yes, he may become a leader of men down the road, but uh, he's pretty young right now. Antamo um, on is the uh, his buddy and uh, Valendil. Other two guys. So, uh, anyway, I just found him. You know, he couldn't get his way. He did the heroic thing by saving uh, Kemen. But it wasn't even heroic. Like, he knew what he was doing the entire time when he saved Kemen. Like, Kemen, dipshit, runs into basically a pole. And Ysildur, we see him looking at that situation and being calculated in his mind. And he knows if he saves him and appears to be, you know, swimming up on shore, that he's going to get what he wants and be able to be put on this boat and like heralded as a hero. And he lies to his father about what Kemen was doing because it serves him. So like, both of them are shitbags, as far as I'm concerned. I think he was showing loyalty to his um, sister's friend, that he was not trying to throw him under the bus. I'm going to say there was another heroic part of him there, but we'll see. But I mean, it's got to evolve, obviously, but he's he has to have his way. Even his little smirk as they're doing the march at the end just shows that he's, you know, in it for glory as opposed to for Numenor, Numenor, so... Well, and one thing that uh, Valendil says to Isildur, which I think resonates with people who have seen the prologue of Fellowship of the Ring, is the reason Valendil doesn't give in to Isildur's pleas is that Isildur is in it for himself. And Valendil says to him, one day, I hope you find something that you would be willing to sacrifice anything for and leaves it at that. And it is just, yeah, Sildor is really establishing himself as a character who is not likable and that we're not sympathetic to. And I'm wondering if throughout these five seasons of Rings of Power, if we're actually going to see some growth from a Sildor, and then he's going to break our hearts when he reverts to this chi- his childish ways. So there's another layer to that scene. Isildur names one of his sons Valendil. And Valendil's the only one that survives the attacks by the orcs. And that line leads to Aragorn. So Valendil saying, I hope one day you'll find something to sacrifice everything for, could also be in reference to a child. Oh, well, that's very nice. (laughs) Well, he's going to be a dad before he slices off Sauron's hand. So we know that. But yeah, obviously it's in reference to the One Ring and... You know, you got to dig deep to get that other layer, but I like to try. But it's there. Okay. 
the other the other thing I would say about the the scene overall is I love the little sword sword play with uh. Galadriel. She just shows her superiority and just how good she is. Tries to keep it simple for them, but it was just done with so much tongue in cheek and so much fun uh, that it showed you first of all a lighter side of Galadriel and uh, also a little smirk from Elendil. Uh, how they interacted. I, it was a fun scene. It was enjoyable to watch and it was really played out well. Yeah. And what we also learned from that scene is that Hallbrand clearly grew up playing devil sticks because there is no way he just casually kicked up that sword from the ground as like, I think Galadriel termed him a smith's aide. You don't get those skills just blacksmithing, <laughs> my friend. You clearly had some sword play in your day. Uh, so yeah, yeah some fun banter years, between serving Morgoth as one of his chief lieutenants. Got it. <laughs> Those are the bad things he's done. Yeah, I don't know. Just I had a lot of fun with Galadriel uh, this week and her interactions with Halbrand, Queen Supreme. Uh, the scene, the scene between Muriel and her father, where he says, "If you go to Middle Earth, all you're going to find is the darkness." There was a lot of things at play in Numenor, but all of it kept me captivated. I thought the pacing was great. I thought it was lighthearted. I uh, was enamored, even with the shitbags. The banter is good. Valendil is good. It's just, it's fun and it's light. And I'm so excited to see these guys sail their way east to Middle-earth next episode and arrive to meet with the forces of Arondir et al. Yep, me too. I, I thought it was great. Uh, I'm looking forward to the battle scene. The only other thing I picked up as they were scanning as they were doing their marching out is that they were all boys. They weren't men. It wasn't the men of Numenor. It was the late teenage sons of men of Numenor that went. So they're, they're a very inexperienced fighting troop. So we'll see how this plays out. They were referred to as the faithful as well which i think will become a key plot point in that those that are faithful to the elves have now left part of the reason i think that is farazon is an important character in oh, the very, extended yes. universe <laughs> uh in that he it, he becomes king of numenor so maybe something happens to queen supreme or maybe he just makes it up and says, I'm king now. Yeah, he's definitely, he's her cousin, and he's definitely playing up to uh, throw her over. So if their battle over in Middle-earth is not a raging success, I think he'll use that as the downfall. I don't know if Farazon is the king of Numenor when uh, Numenor falls, but I certainly, based on the sliminess of what they're setting him up for, he doesn't have a heroic or... Uh, a true leadership quality that we would look to as a king. So, you know, that that fall uh, with him as king makes sense. I to believe me. he goes through kind of the opposite arc that we're seeing in the show, in, uh, in the Tolkien universe, where Sauron rises up, Numenor sends armies over, captures Sauron, takes him prisoner, brings him home, and I think that's all under Farazon. And then it's while he's prisoner that he spreads his lies and deceit through Numenor. Uh, they start to worship okay. Morgoth and actually get into like a whole human sacrifice thing. And then the island of Numenor ends up being flooded. 
I don't think they're going to play up all of that, obviously. But one of the other key parts there is the Numenorians are not supposed to go west. They are as far west as any man has been. They are not allowed to go any further west. But I think it was episode four where you heard voices calling to Isildur that seemed to be from the west. It happened in episode three and four where he hears his mother's voice, a woman's voice calling from the west a couple of times. So I think that deception of Numenor has already started and we're seeing it there. Uh, But when Farazhan becomes king, I think it will ultimately lead to that. The other big thing is that there are a group led by Elendil that are faithful to the elves that get on ships and take off from Numenor right before that happens. And that's how they arrive on Middle-earth and form Gondor in the south, Arnor in the north. I think their ships actually get split along the way and they land in different spots and that's why they form different kingdoms. That probably won't happen in the show because they'll keep Elendil heading to the south. Well, that's a lot to think on. Fuck Farazhan, but also excited for this whole plot point. (laughs) I think this will definitely be a season two and season three. Oh, it's going to, it'll be the the main political thing. There'll be lots going on with the elves too, I think, in terms of politics and the shifting. And Gilgalad is not going to show his shining qualities all the time either. But uh, uh, there's lot, yeah, there's lots and lots of ups and downs. Uh, Somehow Galadriel makes her way back with the elves as well. So we'll see how it goes. So a couple thoughts uh, just that I'm going to put to you guys and give me some quick answers on these. Galadriel believing that her people turned on her because they couldn't distinguish her from the evil that she was fighting what are our thoughts on galadriel's self-perception it's what changes her from being a one-dimensional character so far we haven't really seen galadriel we've seen a warrior who is focused on one purpose I think that realization... She's got her goal. She's she's heading there. I yeah. think that realization will help her when she gets back to Middle-earth to look at the broader picture and become who we know Galadriel as. In the, in the lore, she does get exiled because of uh, her disagreement, actually, with Gilgalad. So that's all true, um, based on Tolkien lore. So, yeah, she has to do something heroic and obviously see another side that they'll bring her back. So I, I think it's, it's she's rounding out pretty well. Um, Hellbrand's line, you don't know what I did before I ended up on that raft. You don't know how I survived. I took that to mean dude killed a lot of people and was in service to i'm gonna call it a shadow because i'm a wheel of time fan i don't know what like the dark the bad guys whatever you want to say in the south but i also take that to mean he knows a lot more about what's going on than he has even told galadriel and that he's not willing to fully recognize within himself like i think he has a lot more information that he is not giving up so that, to me, is the theory behind why I think he's the king under the mountain, uh, because he's broken a vow before right. and he's he's run away, and he'll do it again. So that's why I that's where part of my thinking is going to the king under the mountain. We'll see how it unfolds, because obviously it's going to come out. It'll come out in bits. It'll come out slowly. But that's my theory. Peregrine. I don't know. 
originally I saw it, speculation that he was the Witch King, and I was like, absolutely not the Witch King. But after this last episode, I'm like, he actually could be the guy that gets recruited to be Sauron's strongest supporter. And part of that is because you obviously see the redemption arc, so he could be a hero of men that was given a ring by the elves right because they trusted him and then as soon as it twists all of that is there to draw on he succumbs to the power yeah okay we are losing graham before we go before you go graham because peregrine and i are gonna dissect the fuck out of elrond and co any thoughts that you want to chime in on with regards to Elrond and Durin and that beautiful table that Durin thefted for Dusa. I, I love the little uh, I love the little banter between him and Elrond when Elrond figures out that it was a fake story. I thought that was I thought that was great. It was a lot of fun and it just again shows the friendship of the two. Uh, the awkward uh, Elrond not telling exactly how he was foiled or or fooled by Gilgalad and Celebrimbor. But uh, telling his friend that it was my fault, I'm sorry, but here's where we're at. The lore of Mithril is interesting to me. I'm going to see if I can do some reading before the next episode to see if that's tied anywhere in in the lore. I'm sure there's something about how Mithril's created. But I'm also not sure about if they have to bathe the elves in Mithril so they can get the light of Valnor back on them and they can stay in the shore. That seems to me to be interesting. That seems weird to me. Obviously, it's a new arc from anything I've seen, but that's where we're at. Anyway, I do apologize, folks. I have to go. I have another, uh, another conflict I have to go. So I will say farewell. You guys continue to do it, and I will uh, see you guys next the week. The road goes ever on. And on. And you know. I will leave you with the fate of the entire elven race is in my hands. Yours. Say that again? Yours. <laughs> Whose hands? That <laughs> <laughs> was too much fun. Anyway, mm. see mm. everybody. Bye. Bye. We lost Greyhaim because apparently, I don't know, whatever's happening in Valinor is more important than finishing talking up about the most important part of the episode that we haven't gotten to yet, and that is with intention a little bit. It is Elrond's plot. We don't even get a snippet of Elrond until 30 minutes into the episode. The whole episode is an hour and 12 minutes, so it's not quite halfway, but it's pretty damn close. We are missing our boy. We open up on the scene with Elrond, with him at dinner with uh, Durin and Gilgalad. We have this beautiful scene of Durin telling Gilgalad that basically the material that the table is made out of is so precious and it's only used for, you know, very important moments, uh, effectively tombs and <laughs> that it is, it, it's sacred material. We have then uh, moments between Elrond and Gilgalad talking about myth or talking around Mithril because Elrond is keeping his promise. He doesn't reveal that they have found the ore, but he basically says to Gilgalad, like, Bro, you sent me there with a nefarious purpose and you never even fucking told me the reason you wanted me to talk to 
the dwarves. What in the fuck? And instead of owning up to his shit, Gelgalad is like, recount the song of the roots of Hithaglia out of the fucking blue. And then Elrond is, no, like, let's actually talk about what's happening. And then Gilgalad is like, song, please sing it for these ears. Like what happened? And then we get some lore about the clash between the elf and the Balrog and how this was one of my favorite quotes of the episode. So we have the elf and the Balrog and from their battle fuses a power as pure and light as good and a power as strong and unyielding as evil that sunk into the depths of the earth creating Mithril. I understand it's contentious, and Peregrine, I will be picking your thoughts on that particular lore. But just to finish up my summary, basically we have Elrond conflicted in what to do with his oath because he said he's not going to speak of Mithril, but Celebrimbor and Gilgalad already know about Mithril. So you can't break an oath when they already know what's there. Like, he's not revealing anything that isn't already known. Celebrimbor hasn't, like, stated that he had studied this material and that nothing could break it, nothing could diffuse its light. So is Elrond breaking an oath? I don't personally think so. Um, Elrond then brings his conundrum to Durin after learning that effectively, if the elves aren't coated in mithril, they will die or they will fade into the world and then the world will be doomed and everyone will fall. Everyone is dead if the elves aren't coated in mithril. So Elrond basically has to break his oath to save not just his race, but the entire world. And he puts that to Durin. There's a fucking epic moment between Durin and Elrond where you can see Durin is just feasting on the fact that he gets to save the, save the elves. And they walk off into this beautiful autumn twilight bantering about Elrond saying, well, just tell Disa I gave her the table. It was a gift from me. And Durin smirking because he is going to be the one to save the elves. That's this in a nutshell. I'm a never Tolkiener. Peregrine, what are your thoughts on everything in the Elrond plotline, but most especially the elven and the Balrog fight and the creation of Mithril? First off, you missed the best line from the episode. Hit it. Give me Go. the meat and give it to me raw. That's right. Don't know how you left that one out. Pure gold right there. Duran man. Uh, so there are origins of elves fighting Balrogs. Okay. I don't think there's any tie to Mithril. And one of the most notable elves that fights a Balrog is Glorfindel, whose name may be familiar to others out there. He was replaced by Arwen in the movies. He's the one that goes out to save Frodo because he can stand up to the wraiths. He has experience with the Balrog. He died in that encounter, but I believe he was sent back to Middle-earth right around the time that this story should be taking place. 
also another neat tie-in. So we may meet Glorfindel, who I think is the one they were talking about in that story. If you want him, come and claim him. That's the one. Does Glorfindel say that in the book? <laughs> uh, I, can't, I don't think he says it quite like that. <laughs> no one can because Arwen is epic. Representation matters. Women are better. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Hey, just ask the Witch King. Couldn't be killed by a man. Enter Eowyn. Yeah. I am no man. The other thing with that story, why would they put a Silmaril in a tree? I don't even know what a Silmaril is. All I know is Harry Potter and Horcruxes, so that's what I thought So the Silmarils were extremely powerful jewels forged by one of the elves... Way, way back, the important parts come in the Baron and Luthien tale that Aragorn tells to Frodo at Weathertop. They steal a Silmaril from Morgoth. They actually beat Sauron on that quest, I think, and he turns into a vampire and runs away or something like that. Typical Sauron. And that's kind of the main part of the Silmarillion, is their quest to steal the Silmaril. But basically it's what the elves have been chasing and what Morgoth stole from okay. the start of the first age when they first came to, to Middle-earth. I don't think there's any recollection of a Silmaril just being put in a tree. So the origins of that story really make me think it's an unreliable narrator kind of thing. Because okay. I, I did see that this is the issue that a bunch of Tolkienists had their panties in a bunch about. Like, they just lost their shit over this elf and Balrog battling it out over a Silmaril in the tree. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but... And you have faith in the writers that it will make sense? Or is this just going to be a shitty thing? that we're going to have to go with as I don't know because I've seen things in fandoms that go <laughs> that way and people are like why why and it can be devastating but there are hints to an unreliable narrator in this episode with Adar talking about the stories that are lies that run as deep as the rocks and the roots themselves or something like that. That's right. And that was an episode. Uh, that was an episode four when he's talking to her. Yes. Deer. So this does seem a direct parallel to that. And part of the whole thing with this season is who is Sauron? Where is Sauron? And part of that is because based on the lore, he could be in three places at once. We've kind of already touched on okay. he could be in Numenor. He's the one that teaches the elves to forge the rings, but that's early on in this age, before well before the fall of Numenor. So he could already be... Okay. He should be teaching the elves. And I believe in the fall of Numenor, he actually dies. Like, Sauron dies, and his body disappears, but that's when he gets the corporeal form and becomes the entity that is Sauron. So has he already achieved just that entity status because one of the other things is when they were talking about the key that is the sword i believe they talked about something with it uh and the unseen world which could be the world of the wraiths where for example frodo goes when he puts on the ring so if 
Sauron's already in the Unseen World, does that key create a bridge for him to come back and affect Middle-earth? See, and I think just because we do have five seasons, I think we're getting Sauron in his corporeal form before he goes into, like, Wraithville. I think we're going to get, like, physical Sauron. And, like, that's part of the fun of the season is because he could be any of these things and we don't know. Any of these things, except for now, hot human, because like, quite frankly, Hallbrand, you had me skeptical and then you start forging a sword and then you have that like tortured face, throw down your sigil, pick it back up. There was a lot that was done with Hallbrand this episode that I was like, okay, clearly he's not Sauron because he's Sauron because he's a tortured individual and he's still dealing with his like moral conflict. Or is that all calculating? (laughs) Or is Except it, I don't think anyone was, was on screen for a lot of that debate. No, I um, don't like now. So now I'm like, I, I still think because we have five seasons of Rings of Power, I think we're going to get him. I think we're going to see how he convinces the elves to trust him. I think we are going to get there with Sauron and Celebrimbor, like, throwing it out, forging these rings. Celebrimbor and Gil-galad, I guess, being skeptical of this guy who comes in. I think we're going to get there. I don't know who it is yet. And honestly, I'm having fun with the tension of the unknown. And I don't know if, like, you, as, again, someone who's read all of Tolkien's works, like, is that as fun for you? Or are you frustrated because Sauron hasn't been revealed? Yes. <laughs> Uh, it, it's fun because you don't know and you don't know where his influences are because uh, he could be a huge influence in that story. And like one of the neat things with Sauron is he runs through all three ages. So like his roots, he has the power to lay tons of groundwork and influence people through the ages and then pick it back up thousands of years later to bring them back into the fold that being said as soon as you meet someone that you know is a sauron character it can kind of ruin that character because suddenly like you know where that plot line goes so how do you make five seasons if say in episode two they introduce someone called anatar and everyone's just like oh can't trust him what are you gonna do i think it will be a mix of both where obviously we see his influence on the world but I think we will meet him in probably human form. Who that will be, I don't know. I think they will create something for the show, which is going to anger a lot of fans out there. I mean, I feel like they're already angry, so quite frankly, bring on the heat. Yeah, exactly. Like They're already angry. If you did it the other way and just gave it to them, they also wouldn't watch because they'd be bored and they know where it goes. So I think they're going to create someone for the show. It will anger the fans, but I think it will move the plot line forward in a better way. Okay. With that, uh, final thought, synopsis, concerns with the Elrond plot. Anything that stood out to you? Anything that was like, ooh, I'm flagging this as a Tolkien enthusiast that is... Uh, they're going to either need to correct or expand on when we come back. One of the things that stood out, I think Durin made the elves carry that table a long way. Did Very they? Long. Were they in Linden when they were? They had a long walk that, home. Like Linden is west of the Shire, and then they had to go to Casadum. 
so they took longer than like Frodo did. It was a long walk home, and uh, and uh, he definitely like Duran pointed out that they needed to get a start on the road because it was a very long walk home, and he watched them carry that table home to Disa. Like, listen, I don't believe in Valentine's Day because Hallmark is bullshit and all of that stuff. But genuinely, Duran is husband of the year. Like that is the biggest love language I've ever seen. My wife wanted a table. She's been asking for one for years. I saw an opportunity and I'm going to make six elves walk this masterful table to my home, which is no less than probably a month's journey, and take it to her and deliver it to her and like mount it and that is how I say, I love you, Disa, and yes, you are the queen. Thank you for singing for me. Also, to go along with this cool rock, I totally manipulated the king of all the elves. Yes. Who's supposed to be a badass. Like, quite honestly, fuck engagement rings. A table is where it's at. Like, if you're not willing to commit to the lengths that Duran did, you have no business proposing as far as I'm concerned. Duran is amazing. Duran and Disa forever. Yes, tables are a love language. Okay, uh, before we wrap it up here, predictions, expectations for next episode. We've seen the trailer for episode six. I think we're basically just honing in on the battle. I think we're just going to get Arondir and Galadriel as like the centering plot points. I don't know if we're going to see Nori. I doubt it. I don't know if we're going to see Elrond. I doubt it. I think it is just episode six epic battle and uh, wasn't expecting it. Totally thought we were going to go through a time warp, but it's not a Rocky Horror Picture Show situation I don't know. Maybe I'm being thrown off by the trailer, but anything that uh, stands out to you from the trailer that we saw for episode six or what you are expecting from the next episode. I don't know if I'm excited about the next couple episodes purely because of it being a TV show. (laughs) And I know how their plots typically go, that it is going to be a big culmination in a battle. And because it's going to try and draw on the fan base, it's going to be very reminiscent of the Battle of Helm's Deep. That being said, I think that even if the humans and elves win, they are going to lose that sword hilt and lose their position there. Yeah, Watchtower is going to fall, um, I think, both literally and uh, metaphorically. Like, I think they will collapse the Watchtower onto the invading forces and I think they will retreat and I think they will sacrifice both their position and the hilt as they go. Yeah, and it may be that their pursuit is stopped and they're allowed to go free after Adar and the orcs get that hilt because then they just turn around and make Mordor. That would be an interesting end to that arc where you wouldn't need to see a lot from them necessarily in season two. You know what they've done. You show a couple of shots of them just building and stuff, and that allows for them to introduce an Anatar character into the elves or elsewhere in the world as that kind of evil force to meet up with 
Mordor in season three or season four, essentially. Right. Yeah, because we've got we've got a long way to go here, folks. Uh, okay, standout moments, Rose and Thorn of the episode for you. So my Thorn, I would say, would have to be the Galadriel training fight scene. You hated that? I hated it and I loved it. <laughs> In that... You hate how much you love Everyone it. loves a good montage, but I don't think it was necessary to advance the plot. And this is coming from kind of that Wheel of Time jaded background where so much is condensed into so little. When they're taking time to do something like that, it just makes me question why. And I could see so many other things to do with that time. So that kind of makes it stand out as a thorn in my side. The rose, I mean, Durin and Elrond's friendship and banter, it... They never stop. They're it really makes me see the Elrond that I knew, especially reading The Hobbit for the first time where he was welcoming. He's the one that showed Bilbo how to read the, uh, the star map uh, or the moon map and show him how to get to the lonely mountain but i can also see exactly where they're going with the elves and the dwarves splitting and i think that's what they're really setting up obviously with the the whole mithril mining thing because then it comes down to who caused the balrog to rise was it the dwarves by doing the physical work or was it the elves by whether it's purchasing or needing that much mithril in the they first place. It. And they, they like basically Celebrimbor says we need to dig fast and hard. So we need them to do this for us and we need them to dig deeper. And because we've been taught as viewers that it was, you know, the dwarves who dug right. too deep. But now we're finding out a different layer that it was the elves who prompted the dwarves to dig too deep. And they only did this basically to save humanity. It adds so much to it. And I, yeah, I'm very excited. Which could all be based on a mistruth laid by Sauron. Right. Did that really happen? Was there a... Cimmeril in the tree was there an actual conflict between the elf and the balrog how did this ore come to be we don't know there are so many questions that are rooted in like the rocks of this entire foundation and if it didn't come to be through the balrog and the elf and the Silmaril. how do the elves even know about it if the dwarves just found it how do they know it and when you know, the dwarves just discovered. And meanwhile, Celebrimbor has had an opportunity to examine this ore in its entirety. It's very interesting. Who gave Celebrimbor this ore? How did he come to discover this, this object? If, yeah, the dwarves are just discovering it and Duron Third is so protective of it. I have questions. We don't have answers. For me, my rose is, every time I feel like it's Durin and Elrond, their chemistry, I talked about it last episode, it's just off the charts. Uh, but I'm going to say my rose is hot human, uh, Halbrand forging. That was unexpected and, 
Whew, my goodness, um, caught me off guard. Uh, so that was that was a rose for a number of reasons. My thorn, I think, might be the divide. And I don't mean thorn as in, I don't think it was, like, I don't think it weakened the episode. But my least favorite moment was um, the obstacle that has now been created between Nori and the stranger. Because she was so steadfast. She was so on his side. And now we have a splintering. And I don't think we're going to correct that within the next episode. I don't think they're going to be in the next episode. Happy to be wrong. I mean, my predictions are shit, so I probably will be. But I am very curious where Nori's relationship with the stranger goes on this migration. I don't know if they'll be in the next episode. I feel like they may be traveling south right now towards Mordor. I think we're getting a meetup. They could meet up after either with the Numenorians as they're heading towards Mordor or after the battle and everyone's fleeing Mordor. At some point, I think, I think ultimately this episode, like this season will culminate in a meetup of all of our plot lines. Maybe not Elrond and Galadriel because we've already seen them splinter, but certainly Arondir, Galadriel, and Nori, I think there will be a meeting possibly in episode 10 if it's earlier whatever i already called it if it doesn't happen this season then uh <laughs> i i don't fucking know where we're going i'm confused i am excited i have no idea where it's going either especially with uh nori and and the halflings there the hierophants obviously based on the names we think they're going to end up in the shire but there's also uh, the ones that were around Anduin that uh, Smeagol came from. Yeah. Right? So are we going to lead through there? Are we going to get traces of that? Or is it going to be a separate thing and we don't see it? There are questions. We don't have answers. All I personally have is excitement. So you, Peregrine, as a longtime Lord of the Rings fan, how does episode five leave you feeling? Do you hate it? Are you hate watching? Will you keep watching because you're genuinely excited or you feel like you have an obligation? Give me your overall thoughts and feelings as they stand right now with episode five. Halfway through the Gonna keep watching. I love it in that there are so many little Easter eggs and things that you can piece together as a fan and thorough reader, but you can also ignore all of that and just watch it and enjoy it i don't like it in anticipation if that makes sense because it's essentially a major network tv show and you know how certain things are going to be structured and written but we haven't gotten there yet we have not so you gotta wa- i gotta watch it and find out as natasha bedingfield says the rest is still unwritten don't say that but I got to keep watching and figure out where it goes. There's so much that they can do with the world. There's so many things that we haven't seen yet. Although you thought we saw Ents that we know are out there. Even just those little tidbits. It's worth my time every week to get drawn back into this world uh, in such a high quality on a recurring basis. Such a high quality. 
it's fun. I'm having fun. Uh, I don't have a lot of stake in the show. I'm just enjoying the journey that we're on. I like the slow burn. I like that it's contrasted with House of Dr- House of the Dragon, which we know has a very finite beginning and ending. And if you haven't read Fire and Blood, I don't know why you haven't like you're like waiting on tender hooks for nothing. The story is already written. It's history. We know what's happening to everyone. And this, I feel like Rings of Power is such a different entity. Like we know how we get to Sauron and we know how we get to the Lord of the Rings and Frodo's journey. But this beginning piece, uh, the Second Age, is very underdeveloped, even in the lore. There's so much room for play here. And I am having a blast just living in the world that is Middle Earth. I don't know. I hope you're all having fun with us, too. You can find Feather and Mountain Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. You can find us on Instagram at Feather and Mountain Podcast. You can find us on Twitter with the same. You can email us at Feather and Mountain Podcast at gmail.com and if you have uh, any qualms with where the season is going any uh, issues with the casting notably of my best friend Iran dear uh, you can email us at fetch your feathery shirts at deesestable.com that's all for us here Graham Confusion you can be found at Graham22 on Twitter Peregrine you haven't set up an alias yet but you're around on places you're in the discords doing things it was great to have you on we'll have you again any plugs uh, that you want to put out to the community before we sign off no just if you love something, support it. <laughs> Whether that's podcasts, worlds like the Wheel of Time, Lord of the Rings. If you love it, support it, get behind it, get behind the creators, and it gives you a whole new chance to dive into that world, which I'm just finding again after 15 years away from the internet world doing things. Love getting back in. It's a great time. Dive in, folks. You're in for a great ride. All right, that's all for us here. Have a great night or day or midday. I don't fucking know. Enjoy your brunch. Second breakfast. Bye.